Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to On Point. This episode, I sit down with an ODFNW bear biologist, and we talk about bear biology, kind of the anatomy, habits, and all things bears to help you get more information to go out and fill your tags. So hopefully you guys get some good information with this. I know I learned a few things that I definitely found surprising, some cool studies that they performed that showed some surprising results, and what the overall outlook is on the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife on bears and hunting and where we're headed. So hopefully you guys had a, have, a, have a great day. You're having a great season. And this should be able to help you out in, in not just Oregon, but just black bears in general. This this applies to a lot of black bears on a lot of different landscapes. And there's just a lot of good information here. So outside of that, hope you guys are doing well. And I will see you at the end of the episode. Bye. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get this thing rolling here, man. So if you want, give me a quick intro and maybe kind of a history of how you got into where you're at. And we'll start talking about some bears. Sure. Uh, so my name is Derek Broman, and I am the ODFW Carnivore Fur Bear Coordinator. Uh, I've been in this position for about five years. Uh, prior to coming to Oregon, I spent a handful of years working for the state of Texas. Before that, working for the state of uh, Connecticut, doing black bear and fur bearer work. Uh, I did my master's in New Hampshire, studying bobcats, and then uh, cut my teeth throughout the Midwest on a number of bobcat and otter projects. Uh, but I'm originally from Iowa, so as this profession kind of requires, you have to go where the work is. And uh, for example, there's only one of my positions in Oregon. Most Western states have maybe one of these positions as well. So um, a lot of us wildlife biologists and fish biologists, you'll, you'll hear, have quite an extensive history and bounce around all over the place. But Oregon is uh, an amazing place to work, um, really advanced on a lot of our management strategies, data collection, and data availability for decision-making. So I'm really, really happy to be here. How do you get out and are you able to hunt as busy and spread thin? Are you able to get out and, and enjoy the actual work you do? Yeah, not as much as I would like to. Uh, um, but I will tell you that I was so incredibly intimidated coming to Oregon because <laughs> most everywhere I've been, I've been able to recreate and dabble in a little bit of everything. But the opportunities here are so extensive, whether it's hunting or fishing or any other outdoor activities, mountain biking, hiking, like it's just, it's so much more complicated and there are so many more options. Uh, the gear that I came to Oregon with is just far inadequate. So it's been a little bit over time I've been dabbling and, you know, do I want to uh, be a high desert mule deer hunter or do I want to just get rained on and be a coast elk hunter? Um, you know, and, and I hang out with a lot of our fish staff, uh, and it's like, my God, I can't even keep track of all these fish that have a technically, I think the same species, but they go by 12 different names. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's just been a, an awesome opportunity and, and I'm dabbling myself. So yeah, I've been out, um, doing some bear hunting. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's fun to have that direct connection and be able to, you know, I think it's also important not only to be you know, kind of the, the science egghead side of things, but also be able to walk the walk as well, participate in these activities and be able to, you know, be better at doing my job to serve the public of Oregon. Yeah. And so you were saying before the podcast started, you, you handle the cougars, bears, beavers. I mean, you handle a lot of different animals here in Oregon. And, and I, I've said it a million times, Oregon's probably one of the most, you know, besides Alaska and all that stuff, it's one of the most diverse states for species I mean, we've got three different species of deer here. There's not a lot of states that have that. I might not be maybe Washington. I don't know. Uh, but, I mean, there's not a lot of states that have as many big game species as we do. It's pretty, 
there's a lot of work to be done for for what you guys do in our state. I mean, there's a lot of work. So yeah, and it's we've got a, an impressive history. You know, whether it's um, you know we had a wolf plan in the state of Oregon before we had wolves. Uh, we've had uh, cougar plans and bear plans in place since the late '80s. When there's a lot of states that still um, almost don't have a designation or a classification for for mm. cougar, they're just uh, you know a, a predator or they just fall through the gaps. So when people want to know where we're at on management and the science and uh, having information for decision making, Oregon is incredibly advanced. I oftentimes kind of say that some of our problems are first world problems. Um, <laughs> And so when I go to conferences and I talk with my colleagues across the West and across North America, um, I feel pretty good about our position that we're in just because we're so far advanced on a lot of those things. I mean, we definitely have our challenges. And and now thinking about what I just said, there's actually four species of deer in Oregon, not three. But um, I mean, we we have our challenges with the the wolves and and all that stuff and the cougars and and the management that um, have been voted in. I mean, that's not you guys just unilaterally making decisions. And and I'm kind of excited to do this episode because I, I've been critical of the ODF and W where I believe they need to have been made critical of where it was a ODF and W decision. But I've also defended the crap out of you guys because you get blamed for so much that you guys don't have control over. I mean, it's not a unilateral decision. It seems like most of the time. I mean, it it seems like stuff's getting thrown on you guys, and then you're told basically to deal with it, figure it out. And so, uh, bears is one of them. You know, we talked about 1994 where a big giant hammer was taken out of our belt that we used to use all the time. And that was bear hunting with hounds and and cougars with hounds. And and that was probably, I think 1994 was probably the worst year for hunters ever in Oregon because we lost a lot of, a a lot of traction right there, you know, and, and I'd be curious to see if you have any numbers before 1994 and then numbers to now for bear populations and just kind of see what the effects have been through the voter mandated cougar ban, not ODF and W's decision, but a voter mandated. And when I say voter, Portland mandated uh, cougar ban. Yeah. And I appreciate you clarifying that uh, some of these things I have been entirely outside of the, the hands of ODFW where we have to work within statutes. And so when there's a uh, ballot initiatives, um, and, and that changes the scene, we have to adapt. Uh, but you're right, there are things that are very much we have to wear. And um, again, I, I, I do appreciate Oregon in that in many cases, um, there's good diversity in the interest of topics. We get good uh, diverse mix of input. And so oftentimes the staff recommendation is indeed reflective of kind of the middle of the road. And oftentimes that's where the science falls. Uh, other states, other areas of the country, you definitely have things far more lopsided one side or the other. So nonetheless, I mean, even if you're middle of the road, that still means there's both sides that are going to be upset because it's not directly in a with them. Um, But that's our job. That's our world of of policy is incorporating feedback and trying to make the best decision for uh, what the public wants, what's best for the resource, and then handling the, the statutes and rules and policies. So it's it's sometimes kind of a fun mix. Um, sometimes it's an absolute nightmare. Um, but when it comes to major events like uh, Measure 18, which was, yeah, back in um, 1994, um, before the ability to use hounds and traps, uh, the harvest was far more selective. Uh, obviously, hunters 
generally are much more inclined to harvest large adult males. Um, and so when we lost that ability to be selective in our harvest, we started to see harvest that was more reflective of just the general population, which meant that we saw a lot more females being harvested. Um, we have some actually published research on those impacts on cougars, but the same can be said about bears. Um, so in some cases, the dialogue even in recent years has come back to that as some of the folks that um, are concerned about the status of those populations have actually had to kind of, um, that were in support of Measure 18, have somewhat had to acknowledge that there was an ability to leave the females, the breeders, I mean, really adult females, females are the greatest limiting factor in most mammal populations. Um, we were able to more or less leave them alone when we had that option to um, see an animal in a tree or see an animal up close to determine male, female, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and we lost that. So we saw populations um, continue to grow um, because we saw that there was this limited harvest um, and of that harvest, the composition was more adult females. And, and also then there's the concern of we have regulations prohibiting the take of cubs or females with cubs. And again, if you don't have that ability to, to discern what's a female or if that a female may have cubs or is lactating, you, you potentially run into that risk of um, not following that regulation or abandoning cubs. So it just a number of those things make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but we've had to again, do the best that we can and sometimes try to come up with some creative approaches to address wildlife management needs considering the tools that we have available to us. Right. So do we have actual data that we can go back and look at? Because um, right now I believe, and if you have better figures, let me know, our, our bear population's estimated around 30,000. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's um, an estimate looking at some density estimates from uh, bear research has been done in Oregon and then mm -hmm. extrapolating that to various types of habitats. Mm -hmm. um, and so we actually do have a grant to work with some uh, pretty impressive researchers out of Montana to develop a new bear population model. So ideally, we're going to be able to get a little bit further along in our estimate. And then also, you know, the best use of a model is to try to see what our management decisions might mean for the population. Okay. Um, so... And again, that these uh, giving a plug for these researchers, they're kind of salivating at working with Oregon because we've got better data than most everybody else. So they're really excited to see just how impressive of a product they can come up with. And a lot of that data does come from our hunters. So um, this is just a nice system where the hunters are feeding uh, a model, feeding these tools, and then it's benefiting them on the back end to try and um, you know make sure that we're making the best management decisions we can. And so when you're saying hunter data, that's that's churning in the teeth, the uh, reproductive organs of females, um, your mandatory reporting, how many days you hunted, how many bears you see, you know, all that stuff. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, so there's the, the two side of things. There's the mandatory check-in of harvested bears where we take a two sample, reproductive tract to females. We'll oftentimes also take a, a DNA sample. Um, and then there's the mandatory reporting on your tags, and that's whether you're successful or not. So having those that kind of twofold uh, input of data is huge because, again, a lot of other states may just have you report over the phone if you were successful on your hunt, and then maybe tooth submission is optional. 
we don't have those knowledge gaps. We've got pretty high compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you, every time I get a little bit of a, a questionable inquiry or phone call, people wondering if our harvest is unsustainable, I'm able to, to kind of overwhelm the inquirer with just all the information that we have. And then they realize, uh-oh, um, I got in over my head really fast. ODFW knows their stuff, and this is a non-issue. Well, it just, I mean, you guys probably, do you have data on like the average age of bears that are shot? Um, anything like that or, or males versus females? Do you have any da- data there that you could? Uh... Oh, yeah. Yeah, all of the above. Um, and actually, one of the things that we use to monitor our harvest is uh, proportion of males and females, proportion mm-hmm. of adult females, average age. There's a number of indices that we use to get an indication of our population health. And those are the things that we present to the commission every year to show where we're at, um, where our populations are trending. Um, we can also look at, uh, it's just fun sometimes to see how old some of these animals are. A couple of years ago, we had the oldest bear ever harvested. Actually, I think it was harvested. I think it was taken. Somebody saw it just like walking in circles in somebody's yard. I think OSP <laughs> removed it, but it was a 31-year-old female. 31. 31. Oh and then we've gosh. had plenty of, of late 20s. Um, and so that's a strong indication in itself that we've got healthy populations because if animals can live that long, that means that the mortality isn't too high. There's adequate resources out there. Um, and that's a great indication of just you know, population health. If, if all we ever had were, you know, the oldest were six and seven year olds, that would start to cause a little bit of concern because our animals aren't that long lived. Do we have a target age of what you would guys would prefer to see to maintain or increase the tags or the opportunities? Um, if six or seven is a worry stage, would like 15-year-old bears be preferable um, or a good sign for you guys? Well, there's no real clear black and white. In many cases, like a lot of wildlife management, there's no one measurement or indice that we use. We try to use everything possible, you know, throw it, digest it, um, and then get a better sense for the whole picture. So, um, you know, as far as harvest structure, if we were seeing mostly, mostly young females get harvested, of the females that get harvested with just a small spattering of older age females just to, to indeed document their presence, that would be ideal. Um, for males, um, I think it's seeing a little bit older aged males would be ideal, um, but also just kind of a good mix across all age classes. Because when we see all age classes represented, it's an indication that one, there's a new crop of youngsters being added every year, but two, <clears throat> animals are able to live to these older ages. So, um, in many cases, it's not a, a direct, uh, correlation or, a, a, an action as, you know, okay, we saw now this one value. Now we're required to adjust tags a certain amount. It's more so just a, an evaluation or assessment or confirmation about population uh, resiliency. So that way um, our decisions, which oftentimes incorporate a lot of public interest and a lot of things that are just honestly non-science based. It's just, you know, public desires for yeah. uh, more recreation or the use of certain tools or techniques. Um, and so just giving us kind of that foundation for striking out and, and making some of these other decisions. Um, so, yeah, it's just a whole mix of things that we consider. And two, if if we had 
some of these other tools that were more capable of, of reducing numbers, uh, I think that we would be a little bit more prescriptive. Um, you look at that in certain states that do have, say, hound hunting or trapping, and they could really make a pretty significant dent very quickly. They right. do have a little bit more uh, you know, strict requirements because that's oftentimes really not a concern of ours. Um, we just have more flexibility and, um, you know, try to incorporate really a lot of the public interest on these fronts, uh, knowing very well that, you know, bear are charismatic megafauna. We can't take these things for granted. Um, I like to joke that, you know, bears are kind of the third rate carnivore in the state now. Mm -hmm. um, now with wolves present, cougars have now taken a back seat. Right now, that means that bears are, I mean, they're way in the trunk at this point. So oftentimes they don't generate nearly the attention as those other large carnivores. So we don't want to be complacent. We don't want to ignore them. Uh, and again, because we've got such a rich history, it'd be a shame for us to stop um, pursuing, you know, collecting more information and, and um, making better decisions. Well, the the point that I, I always talk about, people want to talk about wolves and you're right. And then one of my friends the other day posted something about poachers and I'm like, well, poachers are maybe poachers suck, but they're pretty low on my worries for our populations because you're, you know, you're getting an average and we'll talk about a cougar, you know, they say a deer a week on average somewhere in there, but a bear, um, that's probably the worst thing you could do for fawn or in, in calf recruitment. I mean, that's, I mean, do you have any numbers on what the predation is or the abandonment of, um, make pregnancies from deer or cat or cows, elk or deer there we go um how many of them abandon their young or or terminate basically have a miscarriage due to stress or, or having a bear follow them or does that happen at all because i know that bears are one of the only animals from what i've read that can actually sniff out a newborn um fawn or calf and so they usually hit our herds the hardest from what i understand yeah bears like any um Carnivore that has a good, strong sense of smell are going to take advantage of any new crop of young on the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, our research office there in Roseburg have been looking at this a little bit, trying to look at uh, mortality factors and potential impacts of bears. Bobcats have also been a known um, impact on, on young. Um, but as far as whether that take is additive or compensatory is, is still a little bit to be determined. And I think that they're trying to tackle a, a few of those things. Um, but yeah, any of the, the olfactory predators are, are going to cue in on those. And that's oftentimes why it's, it's ideal to have good habitat to, to help keep those young truly secluded. Um, in some systems, especially with white-tailed deer, you know, the effort to just have all the fawns drop at the same, same time can really flood the market and uh, overwhelm that predator population and, and allow those ungulate populations to do incredibly well. Um, but in many cases... Bears are just kind of opportunistic. They'll, mm. they'll, they'll eat what they can. Most of the time, as many of our spring bear hunters know, they're, they're cued in on uh, grassy fields and vegetation. Um, those things don't fight back. There's no mothers to have to fend off type of thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. But we know that, um, again, all of our plans recognize that these are predators on the landscape. And anytime that we have a recognition that predators are having a significant impact, we try to do our best to retain whatever tools we can to address those potential impacts. We'll um, but everything, it's, it's always a mixed bag. It's never just can blame one predator. Right. Uh, you 
habitat and climate and all sorts of fact roads for elk you know those types of things it's complicated and that's why um hunters have a lot of different opinions because they've all sampled and dabbled in all of these things and recognize that and that's arguably why my profession exists because if it really was that simple you know you wouldn't need uh you know wildlife biologists to have to factor in all of these things it'd just be a a nice cookbook that every one of us could right. just flip to that page and say that's what we do. Well, I know personally, I've I've wrestled with the idea of, of targeting because I I like to shoot. Everybody likes to shoot a big boar. I mean, they're just bigger heads. They're just stockier. I mean, they they're just just a more attractive animal to hunt. Uh, but me personally, wanting to do what's best for the state management wise, and and from what I've seen, I've always not always but recently I've started toying with the idea of hunting large sows. And if I see a large sow, make more of an effort to kill it in order to maybe try and manage the population better. Because as, as you said earlier, the sows are, are the breeders. I mean, those are the ones that produce. And so if we get rid of some of these producers, maybe I can help the population tamper that down a little bit. I mean, is there any is there any logic behind that? Could you elaborate on that, if, even if that's a good idea? Because I feel like I'd be doing a better service as a, con, you know, as a conservationist. Um, hunter conservationist if whatever you want to call them whatever click words they are right now uh that i would be doing the population control better and our ungulate populations a better service by killing a breeder sow or a old sow yeah it's it's a complicated situation because yes while the removal of a breeder um could potentially have an impact on the population there's still the reality that well, but that's just freeing up more resources for others. And that's, again, where it's, you know, is this additive or compensatory? Fortunately, a lot of hunters know about those topics of, yeah, mortality levels are always going to be there, but is it significant enough to see a population decline, meaning the mortality is additive, or is it just business as usual or and perhaps creates more habitat, more resources for others, hmm. um, and that way it's it's compensatory. So. Um, if enough females were taken, you could potentially see a population decline, but at the same time, you're missing out on your crop of more bears in the area, which can hurt some of your hunt success. So, um, you know, I guess it's, what's your motivation? What are your goals? But those may not always align with other hunters. So if it was, you know, a conceded effort in an area to, to reduce female numbers that could potentially see an impact, but uh, a few females removed opportunistically across larger scales probably will have very little impact. Really? It just, it just seems like, and, and, and this is coming from just a average hunter opinion here that we have too many, too many bears. I mean, I've got buddies that'll go out and see 60 bears in a spring season around here. And I mean, I, I've got buddies in just three days. I saw 14. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I w- there was a couple days in a row where I saw uh, five bears and then six bears. And it was just, it's like, dang, we got too many of these things. I mean, I love seeing bears out of any animal in the woods. A bear is my favorite one just to sit and observe and watch. I mean, they just, I got some amazing footage this year of, of mom with a cub and he was just a handful. And I mean, they're just so much fun to watch and every, they kind of each got their own personality, right? So I, I love watching bears, but at the same point, it just seems like there's too many darn bears out here. And it, it does seem like our ungulate, ungulate populations, especially deer, um, I'm seeing a lot of elk in, in my local unit here, but, um, it just seems like they need help. And by maybe trying to focus on tampering down the bear populations would be 
beneficial. And that's just from what I've seen personally out in the woods. But, um, I mean, I, I, everybody I talk to would rather have more deer and elk than bears, everybody. And I'm, I'm at 25 bears now this year and I, I hit it fairly pretty, pretty hard up until I killed my bear. And then I'm like, when somebody wants to go, I, you know, have to twist my arm to get me out in the truck. But, um, everybody I talk to wants to see more deer and elk than bears. So, yeah, it's, I think, uh, most of the comments that we hear would agree with that and that there, there's uh, greater interest in our ungulates. You know, we sell way more, um, deer and elk tags than we do bear tags. And a lot of our bear tags even sold are part of sports packs. So they're not even, um, you know, a deliberate somebody purchasing the, the tag outright. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, each situation kind of differs and, and we don't, we don't ignore all the potential factors out there. So if there is a situation where there's, um, a known, uh, impact, um, certainly what we try to through mostly education and outreach, try to increase harvest. We do that with Cougar as much as we can. There's even been a handful of workshops here, I think in the last year, trying to educate people on strategies, techniques, give people this opportunity and also help out with some of the wildlife management. Um, on the bear front, um, yeah, certain places our biologists keep increasing tags because they are hearing these comments and our data justifies it because mm-hmm. even though we're seeing, we're having more tags, sometimes seeing more harvest, um, uh, we're seeing that it's it's not having a, a negative impact or a concerning impact, I should say. So yeah, I think the opportunity is there. That's why the tags are pretty cheap. Yeah, um, We try to get a lot of people out there. Other states are just dumbfounded when they hear how many tags are I shouldn't say purchased because again, a lot of them come in sports packs. So, um, but nonetheless, that's still, I think 2019, we had like 68,000 bear tags sold across <laughs> spring and fall. Um, so obviously that's a ton of potential bear hunters yet. We only have, you know, I think, I think it's maybe like a thousand or so bears harvested annually. So in Oregon, yeah, I mean, I, I could probably, what are some of our, wow. Average, our last, Five years, we average about fourteen hundred bears harvested through the spring and fall hunts. That That's is state. staggeringly low. <laughs> I figured it would have been fifteen percent of sixty thousand or whatever number you just said. Yeah, it's just that we're in the single digits for hunter participation. Once you factor in all of those sports back tags and uh, you know, and then the general season hunt in the fall, oftentimes most of the bears and cougars harvested are just opportunistic. Right. Somebody's out hunting and elk hunting. And I don't even know how many bears and cougars are passed up because um, they just didn't want to kind of ruin their elk hunt or deer hunt. So um, yeah, we just got a ton of opportunity. And that, that comes in the conversation a lot of when um, we hear requests for extra agency driven efforts to remove bears and cougars or, or increase the harvest. In many cases, we've done almost everything we can to increase a harvest. I mean, you can um, take two, I mean, you've got to, you don't, you're not limited to a bag limit of one. Um, yeah. You keep adding tags, adding units, things like that. Uh, the tags are very, very cheap. It's the same price for non-residents as well. So just even looking at the history of bear management and some of our harvest structure, we're, we're trying to do the best we can to let hunters be the, the tool being used rather than right. some other method. Well, out of any animal um, in Oregon besides elk, bear had probably been my number one um, trying to get good information out there to help other people get 
you know, I get messages all the time about where, how, what, and I'm like, dude, just here's what you need to do. Here's about where you need to go. I'm not going to tell you exactly, but you know, give you enough tools for you to figure it out and then go find a bear. And I'm like, we need like anybody that calls me from out of state or uh, message me from out of state. It's like, dude, come on over, help us out. Like we need help. And, <laughs> and it's dirt cheap. <laughs> it is dirt cheap to come over here and shoot a bear. And, uh, and so since we're talking about management, I kind of want to um, segue into an area that, that I don't agree with this decision. I, I agree that maybe we need to get hunter participation up that, um, that you talked about. Cause it sounds like it's pretty low from what you just said. Um, we, we moved from a, from a first come first serve to a draw, uh, for Southwest Oregon, which I was just dreading. And as soon as I even heard that idea, I'm like, well, why don't we do a quota? And so I'm still a big advocate of a quota. Um, I don't know how much, uh, of that decision was money driven, how much of it was management driven, um, was a quota even discussed and what are our chances of switching that to a quota? Cause if you get more hunters out there, we're limiting it right now at 4,400, I think ish for Southwest Oregon spring bear. Um, if we increased our, our number of hunters and we're not killing that many bears anyways, I doubt we'd even hit our quota. Um, but you'd get more bears killed. It sounds like if, if we're just increasing the pool of hunters, the, the, the ratio would be bigger, obviously. So can you, can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah. So specific to that Southwest hunt, um, it historically was a controlled hunt and, uh, back when it was still a controlled hunt, we had, we kept increasing the tag numbers. I think it started off um, early 2000s, about 2,000 tags, and we bumped it up incrementally. Um, but then there was the concern of a lack of participation. We thought that there was a, a resource available that wasn't being utilized. So there was that change to a first come, first serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the years, we did get up to this 4,400 number that we're at right now. But again, we came into the same problem of lack of participation. So many people were purchasing their, their tags or sports packs, et cetera, um, like say for Christmas. And it wasn't till I think maybe end of January, sometimes we were out of the spring bear first come first serve tags. So there were all sorts of people that just tagged that one tag onto their list of, of items they were purchasing for the year. Mm-hmm. And so the people that really wanted to go bear hunting were missing out on that opportunity. And so um, we saw the participation um, numbers going down. It was still somewhat high, but pretty low relative to most of the other controlled hunts. Um, Before we made the shift, we had, um, you know, when we first switched over to the first come first serve, we were looking at almost 60% hunter participation. And then year by year, that dwindled down to only be about 43, 44%. So mm-hmm. you had, you know, 55% of um, the tag holders not even doing anything with that tag. So the granted, it's just one year of information. But in 2019, we went back to the controlled hunt structure. Um, and we saw that our participation rate went up 5%. Uh, we saw a 24% increase in harvest versus the previous five years. Um, saw a 2% increase in success rate, which indeed, yeah, our success rates in the mid to high teens. But a lot of that, I think, is just the product of the Southwest just being so robust for bears. But hmm. nonetheless, saw an increase in success rate. And then we actually saw a 17% increase in the number of bears harvested per day's hunted. So that's kind of your 
measure of harvest per um, effort. So in some cases we saw, uh, you know, essentially more participation, more serious bear hunters. Um, and we saw a much higher number of bears get checked in and the success rate increased. So considering it was just one year, um, it looks thus far to be pretty good. Uh, we, we gave more folks this opportunity to take a serious approach to that hunt. And certainly there was, um, you know, some people were concerned that they weren't going to be able to hunt that hunt, that they'd hunted it most years. Um, and looking at, I believe, the 2019 data, obviously 100% of uh, first choice applicants got that hunt. And I think it was like 50% of the second choice hunters that did not draw their first choice were able to draw that tag as well. So the vast majority of people that, you know, had kind of a serious or semi-serious interest in hunting the Southwest were indeed able to do so. Hmm. Um, so this really wasn't more about, definitely it didn't have anything to do with revenue because if that was an issue, we would not charge $15, $16 for a bear tag. <laughs> um, it was just more the opportunity. Um, you know, our district biologists in the Southwest are very much plugged in with our hunters and they just, it really kills them to see this missed opportunity. You know, when people come in and say, hey, I want to go out and hunt. I, this is my first opportunity to come out of winter to go do something. And the biologist knows that the resource is there, but the opportunity isn't because there's all sorts of people just sitting on that tag that really had no intent to go out. They just got it before others did. So um, we'll likely continue with that route. One of the issues with the Southwest hunt that's been something we've tried to address or, or just had at least a lot of conversations on is how can we better evenly distribute our hunters. Um, the Sioslaw um, unit seems to get um, most of our hunters, most of the harvest. Um, you know, there's plenty of bears there. There's good refugia, but it's really one of the first places that as you're coming down I-5 from the Willamette Valley that you're going to be able to go hunting for bears. Right. So, um, you know, that's been a discussion in the past. There have been some proposals that failed to try and split the Southwest up to better, more evenly distribute hunters. Um, so that conversation will still continue. Um, but for now, the Sayus Law still seems to be supporting a robust population. So we don't have yet the point where we need to, you know, take a really hard approach to trying to distribute folks because we're not seeing necessarily a whole bunch of adult females show up in that harvest. They're, they're able to have that turnover pretty quickly. Interesting, because I, I know I've always heard that north of, um, we'll just say, I forget where the end of the south end is. Is it Smith River is the south end um, of the Sayuse Law? But I've, I, I, I might be wrong on that, but I've always heard the lower Smith River and then a little north of that. And for guys that hunt that, you know, forgive me, I guess. But um, has always been one of the most densest populations among the, one of the densest populations in Oregon. I mean, that, that micro spot in, in that little area there has always been just a, a bear magnet, bear central over there. And if it was closer, I'd, I'd be hunting it personally. But, I mean, shoot, I'm 20 minutes from where I can shoot a bear. So why travel two hours or hour and a half when I can just shoot one right over here, you know? Yeah, and, and that's what oftentimes a lot of our hunters coming from, you know, Eugene, Salem, Portland are doing. They're going to the closest place they can. Mm -hmm. um, and it... I've had many conversations with our biologists say down in Medford Central Point that they're always trying to say, hey, look, we've got tons of bears down here. You know, oh, yeah. don't don't stop at the Sayus Law. Keep on coming because there's 
plenty of bears. Um, yeah, some of the access can be a little bit difficult just because of roads, but there's still tons of public land. Um, so yeah, we're trying to get folks to recognize that there's a lot of great honey holes to check out. Some of these bears don't get much pressure at all. Um, and even too, that habitat changes pretty quickly over a short distance. You know, you go down to the Applegate, it's a really cool country that if anybody feels, I don't know how they could get to it, but feels like bear hunting is getting boring for them. Um, there's <laughs> so many cool places to check out in this state to, to test your skills. And that's where, you know, I get really excited about bear hunting in this state in that there's so many different skills, so many different techniques that are necessary. And it's all dependent on where you're going. You know, whether you're you're hunting clear cuts or you're sitting on a ridge top glassing all day, covering some huge country, you know, what it takes to be successful is very different uh, throughout the state. Sometimes it can change just drainage to drainage. Um, you know, oftentimes when I go out, usually it's just my number one strategy is how do I avoid not getting covered in poison oak? But <laughs> that's obviously much more of a Western, Southwestern problem. Um but it's, yeah, there's just a lot of really great opportunities and it's the first opportunity for all of us to, you know, get out, stretch our legs, come out of our own hibernation or, or torpor, uh, if you want to be truly accurate. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's, it's a fun opportunity. Well, you mentioned Applegate and, and the Medford area, and that kind of leads me into another area I wanted to cover, and that's color phase. And if you go down south of Roseburg, you're going to get more color phases. If you go over east you're going to get more color phases from my experience. Anyways, the drier climates, the warmer climates, um, for whatever reason, the less coastal climates are going to have color phases. Is there any correlation or any reason that's true? Cause it seems like over East Rye hunt, it's mostly chocolate bears. And it seems like a black bear is actually more rare than a chocolate bear in some of these spots. Yeah. So a lot of those color variants are more common in the Northeast and the Southwest. Um, and a lot of it has to do with just, you know, how these bears have evolved to be successful in those areas. Um, so those colors oftentimes coincide with uh, soil type, soil color, vegetation type, vegetation color. So a lot of it is driven by um, the ability to be undetected. Um, so other places that are far more wet, uh, far more uh, dense vegetation, you know, especially coast range, especially north coast, north cascades, that's where you're going to be losing a lot of those lighter colors. And a darker bear is going to be um, better at being undetected. So, yeah, it's kind of ironic that um, some of our densest bear populations are in the southwest and northeast, and those are the places that we have more color phases, which oftentimes, you know, kicks up a lot of the interest with our hunters because they want that opportunity to perhaps go harvest a, a blonde colored bear or a cinnamon colored bear. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a cool situation. We talk about all the different species of big game in the state, but then when we've got all these variations too, that right. adds a whole nother layer of interest and excitement and kind of on somebody's bucket list, you know? Um, but, you know, we don't really have any way to control for, you know, if somebody came to me and said, we want more cinnamon bears in our population, I, I don't have any ability to do that. Um, who knows? Maybe in the future we'll have some sort of, you know, uh, bear hairstylists or some sort of baits we can put out there. But I think we're a long ways from that. For sure. Well, you, you mentioned something about hibernation and I want to get into something because over here at the coast, it just seems like 
everybody has their own theory about what our bears are doing. I've seen them out in December hanging out. I mean, that's pretty late. Um, I've seen them. I don't know if I've ever seen one in January. I might have seen them probably counting the number of on one hand that I've seen in January. But what do our bears actually do in Oregon for hibernation? What What's actually going on there? So first off, if you, I'm going to get really academic on you, um, you know, bears don't technically hibernate. Um, that actually, if you look it up, there's a textbook definition. And what bears actually do, it's this, this state of torpor. So it's not nearly as, um, I guess, rigorous or robust of a, an action that they take it. So it's more of a light sleep than the hardcore, like, you know, if you came up to a bear hibernating, it's not like you can poke them a bunch of times. They're going to do nothing there. <laughs> you might even bust them before you get to that area. So, um, what they do and the level of torpor differs, uh, geographically, oftentimes it's going to depend on the winter conditions. Um, you know, the cascade, you get some decent snowfall, snow depth, you're going to see bears really stay tight, not move, have more of the traditional um, denning type habitat versus coast range, more, more moderate, mild climates. You can see bears more or less active year round. Um, and we see it. A lot of us are still recreating in the wintertime. We're snowshoeing or, or uh, ice fishing or doing all sorts of crazy things in the middle of winter. And we'll see bear sign, even in snow. So we know they're out there. Oftentimes, though, energetically, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to be moving around. There's just oftentimes not much for resources in most places. Now, granted, you go to the coast range and you're living at, you know, 20 feet above sea level. <laughs> There's going to be vegetation. There's going to be a lot of uh, potential mast and things like that from the fall available, and you don't have to really dig too far for it. So energetically, it, it kind of makes sense, but even then, it's still not as productive, and it's you know it's a loss, a net loss of energy for bears. So um, that's part of the reason that when we went through this simplification effort for big game regulations, um, many folks are now aware that our fall bear hunt or general season bear hunt goes from August 1st all the way through December 31st statewide. Mm -hmm. And so even those bears that are active late season are, are eligible for harvest. Similarly, statewide for our spring hunts, everything is April 1st to, to May 31st. So that's creeping in on more of that winter type situation, giving the opportunity for hunters to harvest the animal that's still out and about. Mm -hmm. um, but um yeah, it's just a, well, that too has to bend on, well, impact our spring hunts, right? So if you've got a harsh winter, really tough conditions, we're going to assume to see a later emergence just because the conditions are right. Uh, a lot of spring bear hunters, when they know what they're looking for, they're going to cue in on that. You know, we talk about the ungulate world, the green wave, mm -hmm. you know, when it's green up, where is it occurring? And then bears are going to follow that typically from lower elevations to higher elevations in the springtime. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all connected, you know, just like a lot of things, the best bear hunters, the best deer and elk hunters are essentially the best biologists out there as well. They cue in on these behaviors and these traits, not necessarily linking it to energetics and uh, the ability to survive. We're just recognizing them as these are the things that help us be successful. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, there, there's tons of things from that stuff. Well, I, I know last year when we had that snowmageddon, I mean, we had a ton of snow and very rare. Like this year, there's zero snow uh, where I start bear hunting. Last year, there was like a foot and a half to two feet, and I couldn't get in there for like the first three weeks of season. So 
And then another thing I found last year, and I had a really rough first month. I think I maybe saw one or two bears in April, and then all my bears came in May. And uh, which is every year, the strong majority of my bears that I see are in May. But mm-hmm. um, most of the green up I was seeing was actually inside of the timber. You saw just these weird grass fields inside of this thinned timber, and there's a lot of thin timber where I hunt. And so I just, it, it seemed like all the bears were feeding in the timber and maybe that's why we weren't seeing them in the units. Cause there was more, it was really weird. I'd never seen that much green grass and green up in the timber before. And it was just kind of a weird year. Well, this year it was all early. Everything was, everything was just from, from April 1st, it was pretty much go. And, uh, it just, it seemed like, and I kind of want to get into to bear habitat and stuff. Um, obviously you want to follow the feed and it seems like a bear's brain's really in its stomach and it just it's just following the feed it's it's got to eat all the time it seems like so um this year we really really focused hard um on one to three-year-old maybe four-year-old or less units which is only because that's where we were seeing the bears i mean i'm gonna go where the bears are at we glassed everything and then among five of us in my bear hunting group we're like dude we're not seeing anything in older than a four-year-old unit like it's really weird and then, as always, mossy rock outcroppings were our number one producer in April. Um, there's there's a lot of like this lichen-y, mossy stuff on there, but there's also these tiny little grass shoots that are poking up. What exactly are they feeding on in the very early April when the grass still really hasn't produced much yet, and, and we're seeing them on those um, rocky outcroppings? Yeah, it, it's just all that, that new vegetation that's really rich in nutrients. Um, because those species are growing so fast, they're just so full of nutrients. And um, that's why then once they, those grasses and vegetation start to get older and that rate of growth slows down, they're just far less energetically appealing to bears. Okay. Um, not to mention, too, once those areas start to slow growing, it's usually because conditions are warming up. Um, there's less moisture in that area and that too doesn't work very well for bears. They're, they, they still, most of them are black and they're absorbing a ton of heat. So mm-hmm. being out on those open slopes, those open areas, early season is kind of ideal, but then very quickly they're staying tight to cover, staying in that shade. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's just that vegetation, you know, the swampy areas, they do great. They love skunk cabbage. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody knows what that smells like? You can smell it a mile away. And, and then too, that's a cue that maybe there's a bear in the area that's been munching on them to cause them to stink so bad. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, one of the most difficult things with spring bear hunting, in my opinion, is um, having contemporary uh, information to work with. Because you might go out and scout a couple of weeks and see good bear sign but by the time you actually go out to hunt, that whole area could have changed so fast. Mm. In my opinion, I don't know if I see that level of habitat change when we're hunting other species, uh, especially like in the fall, you just don't see right. that fast of an occurrence. So we can do some scouting, you know, kind of far in advance, you know, like, okay, look, this looks like good deer elk habitat, um, you know, these are the places I should probably go check out. And you come back a couple of weeks later, it's not going to be like it went from bright green to, you know, completely dead and brown. So that is one of the bigger challenges, especially if you're trying to hunt at a distance because you don't, you know, if you're going to invest the time like you hopefully should to go scout an area, you want to make it closer to your hunt date. 
Otherwise, you could come out there and realize, my goodness, everything changed. I'm having to start from scratch, yeah. which is a bummer. Yeah. Um, unless you come out the next year and go, hey, look, I know what this looks like. Uh, you know, April 1, maybe I will go hunt this April 1 next year because those conditions will be similar. That's funny you say that because I had guys that were like, oh, yeah, two, three weeks before season, I was seeing two, three bears a day. And then come season, they were all gone. I'm like, well. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't, I'm not, I don't scout for bears. I, I know where I'm going to go before I even go. Like, I just, I could drive all day and never hit the same unit. I mean, that's how much area we have down here. And, um, there's units that if you took a picture of it on April one opening day, and then you took a picture of it now, you would have thought they were two completely different units. Like it's dead. Um, it looks dead, but until you start putting, you know, the binoculars on it, I'm like, okay, there's tiny little grasses starting to poke up through the sticks. And then now it looks like there's giant weeds and, and knee high grass in it. And it's like, what the heck happened? And, and I pay attention to when I, I know, I don't know if this is a dorky thing or not. It's very scientific, I guess. But, um, I, I like knowing how long it takes me to mow my grass each time. Cause that tells me how fast the vegetation around here is growing. Mm. I haven't had to mow my yard in, in probably two weeks. And it was like every, almost every weekend, I almost had to mow my yard about a month ago. And so it just seems like the vegetation here is starting to slow down a little bit, like the grasses. And I know that's different species and everything, and it's not very scientific, but the weeds and, and all the other natural species around here is just, it's, it's, the growth is starting to slow down at my house. And so I'm kind of seeing that out in the woods a little bit, but then there's a, these other units that are just, I hunted the, the grassiest units, steep, deepest grass I've ever seen, richest grass I've ever seen units last night. And it was just, it was just dog hair thick grass. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And then um, these other units, of course, we didn't see a bear in there. We saw a bear in the half dead unit next to it. You know, it's like, okay, so uh, what is going on with, has there been any studies done about, of why they're in the spots they're at? I mean, it has to be feed. So that grass unit, they weren't in that unit for some reason. They're in that one to three year old unit for some reason, instead of the, five to 10 year old unit with, with the more trees and in the, in the fresh buds they can eat. There's something about those newer units that they like. Can you speak to that at all? I'd be curious to find out. Yeah. I mean, you part of what you're describing are just those more early seral conditions when you've got, um, you know, that new growth following say a fire or timber harvest and such, that's going to be again, the, the fastest growth that you would see. Uh, in the vegetation in those areas mm. because of that more nutrient rich. Um, but bears, you know, like a lot of our wildlife, we would love to just speak in black and whites and here's the behavior and here's the, <laughs> right. you know, here, Oh yeah. If you go stand next to this tree on November 12th, there will be a, <laughs> you know, an elk, it, you know, they, they do all different types of things. Um, really it, it's, you're right. It's, a, it's a stomach thing. Um, sometimes it's just opportunistic that they're just going to bumble into something and find some new food source for them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that they've got a lot of their old reliables of where they know that there's good resources, good cover, safe conditions. But again, these are territorial animals. So then too, you can't just have a ton of bears in one location because um, there is some competition for resources and youngsters are a little bit fearful of getting their butts kicked by oh, some yeah. of the dominant males and females what um and, and that leads into a great area too that i've wanted to know if, if i see multiple bears in a unit it's usually sows or a sow with a boar um and 
but you very, very rarely, I, I'm trying to think of a time I've actually seen two boars sharing a unit. Like it just doesn't really happen. I mean, I've seen maybe a boar here. Actually, we did just a week ago, a giant boar, you know, 300 plus pound bear, small strip of timber. And then there's another bigger unit. And that's where I shot my boar. And the big boar had about a hundred pounds, hundred pounds on my boar. And, uh, but that was pretty dang close. I mean, they were within 800 yards of each other, maybe a thousand yards of each other. And to me, that was pretty close to see two boars together. What is the actual territorial range? And um, can you speak to anything on that as far as um, a sow with cubs versus a boar and, and how that will in interact in, in sows versus sows? Is there any, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so um, bears are territorial, but it's usually between the sexes. So males don't want to share habitat with other males females typically don't share their habitat or their home ranges with other females but females will oftentimes share part of their home range with their offspring so typically their daughters hmm. so if you see multiple females in an area chances are they're probably related there's likely going to be the the mother and the offspring that have been able to set up shop next door and so they're going to be quite a bit more tolerant of those other females if they're their direct lineage really um their home ranges, female home ranges are about some of the places we've seen um, less than 10 square miles, but some of the males can be four times as much. So you can see 40, 50 square miles for a bear, for a male bear. That's impressive. Even and, on the coast? Um, I mean, they're going to be much smaller. Well, it depends on the resources. So in areas where there's good, dense resources, you can pack more bears in. They're going to be fat and happy and not have problems with their neighbors. In areas where there's more limited resources, say more high desert country, mm -hmm. they're going to be much more spread out because it requires more area to encompass their needs. Makes essentially. sense. You see the same thing with ungulates too, elk. I mean, uh, Rocky's home range is way giant compared to a rosy over here. Yep. Same thing with cougars too. If you've got a good dense prey population, you're going to have cougars with really tight little home ranges. Oregon's reported some of the highest cougar densities in North America because of that, just that the resources are available. Awesome. Um, yeah. So one of the, one of the strategies of these males though, are to try to incorporate uh, and encompass as many female home ranges as possible. And so come almost oh, this time of year, uh, definitely in the next month or so, we're going to start to see the males and the females breeding and the male is going to try to meet up with as many females as he possibly can. Mm -hmm. So um, that'll then at that time kind of dictate their activity levels. Um, the females with cubs are going to try to avoid everybody. Um, and two, I can, that ties into some of our hunt structure. We oftentimes get a lot of requests for people wanting to see the hunt extended into June. Um, that would be pretty and cool. Our argument has been that um, we know that the first bears to emerge are typically your males because they're independent, they can do their own thing, they don't have any mouths to feed. The next to emerge are the females without any young. Then after that are the females with yearlings, so the bears that were born the previous year. And then the last to emerge are the females with the cubs. Um, and so because we don't wanna separate females and cubs, um, we kinda have that hard May 31st deadline because through our data, we can even show that females comprise already i think only 27 percent of the total harvest hmm. and then of that the the females um 
that have bred or females that perhaps were, were lactating is even a much smaller component of that. So in many cases, we, we, we have that deadline because we want to avoid the take of those females with cubs. Um, so we have the data that shows that, yep, we still see more bears harvested later on in the season, especially on the west side. The east side, fascinatingly enough, uh, our bear harvest numbers declined that last week in the season. And I think it's because hmm. a lot of the folks from the west side that have gone to the east side to hunt have maybe called it quits, or maybe it's now venturing into Memorial Day weekend and they're not you know, wanting to spend time across the state. So makes sense. Um, so yeah, we know that the harvest is increasing there, but we're also seeing more females comprise the harvest late season. So for us to be able to continue to support this hunt, defend the spring hunt, we, we have to have that deadline that we do, but it all, it's all a factor of, you know, general bear behavior. Um, the females, of the cubs enter last and, um, they want to avoid everybody because the mom doesn't want the cubs getting into trouble or her having to account for them. Right. Um, they're, they just cause problems most of the time. You know, we uh, we saw a bear last week in about 150 pound sow, maybe maybe a little smaller, but she was in she was definitely in heat, and you could you could tell just by looking at her she was in heat, and uh, I mean pretty obvious. And and then that's when we really started seeing the boars start to cover a heck of a lot more ground in that area, and it was like there's got to be a reason, you know, like even 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 just one drainage away. I'd never seen boars cover that much ground this year until that day. And so, and granted, I mean, they were about a mile away, the bear I shot from that sow, but and there was a ton of, we were guessing, uh, boar, um, turds up on the road above where that sow had been in the unit. And, um, you could just tell if they were, they were covering a lot more ground. There's a lot of more bear activity with that sow and heat right there. And, I guess where, what I, what I'd like to know is, is what is the gestation period of, of a bear? Um, and when do they actually give birth and all that stuff? Oh man. So, um, bears have delayed implantation. So breeding season is now, but the, the fertilized egg doesn't actually take hold until this fall. Really? Um, goodness. Is it, I think it's 60 or 90 days. I want to say it's 60. I should know this. Um, I think it's like 60 days gestation period. And so these, these cubs are being born midwinter, uh, usually in January. We've actually got some data on a lot of bear work that's been done in the Cascades that have looked at that to identify when those dates occur. So, and again, that varies geographically throughout Oregon and throughout really North America based on, you know, habitat conditions, uh, winter severity, because ideally these animals want to have the young ready to leave the den when the resources are just right. So, um, you know, harsher winters, you could see a little bit later date of birth because they know that the resources aren't going to be available for a later period of time. Um, but you can theorize that, yeah, especially like our coastal conditions where the winters are just fine, they mm -hmm. can have very early birth dates because they know that they could emerge and there's going to be a lot of likely a lot of vegetation and uh, prey available to them when they do. That's really interesting because, I mean, I saw a few little footballs running around this year, but it seems like most of them were about 30 to 40 pounds, um, maybe a little bit bigger. Yeah, so part of that, too, is just a product of the cubs stay with mom and stay tight and try to stay hidden and, and emerge last. So most of the youngsters that people are seeing are those juveniles that were born in 2019. Um, and so they're going to be weighing anywhere from the 30, 40 up to almost 100 pounds. And they're going to be oftentimes a little bit more independent. 
they're going to goof off and sometimes stay distant from mom. And, and some places, some of these juveniles will even um, go into winter quote hibernation by themselves. Hmm. So um, that's why too, though that age class is eligible for harvest because they're in many cases, independent bears. Um, just, you know, not anything you're going to be too proud to bring home. <laughs> Although, I mean, the meat will be just, you know, the yeah. prime we- quality. It won't be some, you know, dried out jerky, like, you know, 31 year old, uh, sow. <laughs> we saw uh, one last night that was, uh, about a, he'd been lucky if he was 80 pounds and he had to be just kicked away from mom, just, just left the nest. And, and, uh, my friend, the hunter was, uh, wanting to get her first bear, but I just told her, I'm like, she's like, you think I'd be proud of that? I'm like, no, I don't think you'd be proud of it. So <laughs> no, if she's not willing to, you know, be happy with it in a picture and show her family and, and, and feel good about it when she goes to bed, then don't pull the trigger. And I told her, you know, I have this little bear I call LB, um, little buddy, little bear. And I've seen him, gosh, you know, been up there quite a few times, probably seen this bear half a dozen times, watched him for hours. And I've just kind of become attached to him. He got a couple of my buddies missed him and <laughs> missed him. And I was kind of, I was kind of like in my heart, like run little guy, run. <laughs> like, And so uh, I call him my little buddy now and, and, and he's off limits. And, and, um, and I, I told him like, you know, he's smaller than LB and she's like, Oh no, I don't want him then, you know, but it's just kind of funny. And, and I, I'd be curious if you guys have any studies or any statistics on boar uh, predation on cubs. And if that happens a lot with black bears uh, here in Oregon, do you guys have the boars? seeking out the cubs and then if so um there's been theories on why is it because it's not their cub or is it to make that sow come back into heat and i'd just be curious what you what you have uh for information there i do know that we have some information on on cub survival but i have to go take another look and i'm sure it's all in our bear plan which was last updated in 2012 oh wow um but you're right that um Infanticide by boars can occur, um, and oftentimes it's boars um, killing cubs that are not their own, not that they know they did not sire. And indeed, to perhaps um, bring those sows into heat, or at the very least, just remove those genetics from from the area. Um, but it's oftentimes pretty minimal. It, it doesn't have a, a real significant impact. Um, and again, that's why these sows with cubs try to keep their distance. They, they don't cover much ground. They try to just avoid even other, other sows. Um, so it, it's, it's a factor, but not a real substantial one. Well, you said that the sows, if it's, if she gives birth to a sow and she grows up, they'll share that area more. So these bears can actually tell what's their offspring. And that and and is is that pretty definitive or is that fairly subjective? What's what's the how how did you guys come to what studies were done to because that's I find that fascinating honestly. Yeah, a lot of that is just it's just from good old collaring work where you've got sows and then yearlings collared and then the the youngsters disperse and then you find up find out that the daughter set up shop right next to mom hmm. and then over time looking at those. Uh, telemetry locations, you see some level of overlap. Um, and so that's, that's actually pretty common. And that's, you know, dating back decades since we've started to call her things um, that we observed that. Now we don't see that with the males. Um, they will obviously try to find the closest place that they can to 
that's unoccupied habitat, but they're not going to get that preferential treatment like their, their sisters do from their mothers. Hmm. Um, and so that can create some confusion too, when people will see like trail cameras and they'll see a couple uh, sows come through an area and they'll, they'll wonder like what's going on here. And chances are there, those are probably related sows. That's pretty uh, cool. Whether daughters or potentially sisters. Um, so we, we see a lot and, and, and a lot of it is just, it is kind of simple when you're looking at territorial animals that even in studies, and this is even beyond bears where we see a known mortality occur. So now there's a void on the landscape and then there's a rush in of these other critters sometimes collared to fill that void. Um, so there's lots of literature out there showing how some of these animals respond to it. And, and that's definitely a factor in, in our wildlife management techniques. We know that these are uh, dynamic populations with sources and sinks that are constantly, you know, nature fills a void um, that fortunately a lot of states and management agencies are recognizing that we maybe sometimes are working at too fine of a scale. Um, you know, some states will try to have very, very small units for determining harvest levels. And it's like that, that really is not, doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering that animal's ecology and behavior hmm. because you know you could theoretically have any juvenile disperse hundreds of miles in any direction so maybe you need to account for that rather than assume that you have some finite population with you know a real um border or boundary when when that's not the case there's there's bears moving all over the place and we've seen it all the time with in the past where we've moved trouble uh, problem causing bears um Especially on the coast range, we'd move them up into the Cascades, and then a week or two later, they'd be right back on the coast Seriously, range. Seriously, that far away. Yeah, yeah. That's so that's why one of the reasons why um, our damage policy is geared towards, look, if there's bears known to cause problems, uh, we have healthy populations, but unfortunately, usually the answer is removing that animal from the population because it's got to learn behavior, and we can't take it someplace where it's not potentially going to come back or cause problems again. Hmm. So, so see, yeah. hearing about learned behavior, um, I've heard theories and, and I've never, you're the first biologist I've had the chance to talk to this about a lot of the timber companies, um, they do their own management, uh, it seems like of bears, um, very aggressive. Uh, there's weight warehouser around here is a very giant timber company. Um, it seems like it's always been on the hush or um, you always hear about, well, my cousin's, you know, dad is a trapper, or, you know, a hounder for warehouser and they'll kill whatever, whenever they see it. And it just sounds just like bear Mageddon over here for private timber companies. It sounds like whether how legitimate that is, I don't know, but it's, you know, depredation is a thing, uh, for landowners. I know that is, and you can get permission to kill extra bears or whatever. But, um, I guess I would be interested in finding out, um, how basically where I was going with that is timber companies don't like bears because they bears will eat their trees and then from what i understand the cambium layer of a tree the bark you know layer of a tree will basically either kill the tree or basically ring the tree eating the cambium layer and there goes their profit so i've heard that is a learned thing and not not all bears will do that and is that true and and has there been any studies on certain bears feeding on certain things because that's been a learned trait so this is an awesome topic and, and uh, kick me back in line if I get way off into the weeds. Nope, that's, go ahead. <laughs> um, so 
First off, yeah, there, there's a statute in place that statutes supersede ODFW uh, authority that landowners can address damage and conflict of bears and cougars without receiving any permit or approval from ODFW beforehand. And that does allow the use of tools that are prohibited to hunters and trappers. Mm -hmm. So you can use hounds, you can use straps to address conflict and damage. But the one stipulation is that the statute states that damage must be occurring, meaning present tense, meaning it, you can't do proactive bear removals. So um, we have good communication with these timber industries. There's actually some uh, cooperatives of these professionals that work for timber companies. Um, and they understand that in the world that we live in right now with things going viral and everybody's got a camera on their cell phone, they're very, very careful to make sure that they're entirely operating within the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. Not to mention they oftentimes go above and beyond. So um, we see pretty much full compliance. These animals are still getting checked into ODFW. Really? So, um, you know, we haven't seen any situation where we feel like the the level of take is too high. And we do see it vary over the years. Sometimes tree peeling is is a greater factor than others. Um, And a lot of these professionals on the ground, they're oftentimes out scouting. And then they only take action once they start to see damage occurring. And they do their best to really try to get the known problem causer. And some of these folks are just like any one of us that they start to really get good at recognizing sign uh, and sign between individuals. Hmm. Um, so yeah, the the latest understanding is that it is a bit of a learned behavior. It's not really common across the range of black bear. Um, there's actually um, a research project that's probably now wrapping up with Oregon State and Wildlife Services Research Branch that they actually collared a number of tree peeling bears in Oregon and Washington and followed them around. Really? Um, That's a pretty huge commitment from those timber industries because rather than removing those bears, they put a collar on them and let them loose, which is a huge dedication from those um, landowners and producers to um, allow that for the sake of science and try to have a better understanding of why these things occur, where can we perhaps get more predictive at where these things can occur so we can stave it off or maybe change some of our silviculture practices to reduce this, whatever is appealing to these bears. Hmm. Um, typically, yes, it's females that are doing the peeling. Really? Um, yeah, and, and actually Department of Forestry has some uh, surveys that they conduct to try to look at the level of peeling or other just timber damage, whether it's fungus or other things. So this has been a hot topic for a long time. There's a lot of dollars associated with the potential loss of timber in those activities. Um, but again, all that information comes ODFW. We have, we plug that into our um, some of our mortality indices that we look at. A lot of those folks, too, are some of the best people to speak with. So if a hunter can find out who maybe does some damage work for a timber industry on what they've seen, where to go, some tricks and tips, um, that's pretty valuable. But Hmm. usually some of that timber damage doesn't occur till the very end of the timber or the the hunting season. But um, those folks are out right now covering a lot of ground trying to look for those things. So that's another tool for hunters is getting in touch with the damage folks to find out. What do they see, where to go, tricks and tips, lessons learned, those types of things. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, 
it's a bit of a challenge. I think we're getting better at recognizing what's the issues out there. These folks know that with the sensitivity surrounding the the topic, they're they're very being very very diligent on it. So, um, and two, OSP is engaged with all of these groups and all these discussions as well. And so hmm. we very rarely have, um, you know, they're they're pretty open and honest. Granted, who knows? There could be all sorts of things happen in the darkest corners of the forest. But <laughs> for the most part, uh, we feel that this is a bit of a non-issue. It's fortunate that Oregon does have some statutes in place that give some flexibility to the public without a whole bunch of red tape. And in many cases, I think that that's helped um, allow for greater coexistence with bears and cougars and things like that, because the public can take action and address problems without ODFW having to get caught in the middle. Mm -hmm. Um, Other states, not the case. And that's where sometimes causes problems because um, people disagree with some of the actions or the paperwork, et cetera. And and that's, there was a lawsuit um, against Washington department of fish and wildlife the last couple of years, because they're in that boat. They, they have to, they manage, and control the bear tree peeling damage work. Mm-hmm. And so they got caught up in the middle of a lawsuit, but it doesn't apply to Oregon. So fortunately, um, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Well, I've always I've always been curious about the legitimacy of, of all the rumors you hear and, and the amount of bears that you hear are taken off of some of these properties. And you know, we're talking over a hundred thousand acre tree farms here. I mean, giant tree farms. And, um, there, there's one tree farm down here in particular that I heard, you know, over a hundred bears and it was a relatively fairly small compared to the other tree farms. Um, I'm like, that's a lot of bears, you know, like how legit is that and stuff like that. And that just maybe speaks to the volumes. Are those counted in your guys's harvest data for hunters? Um, or is that a completely different figure? So, uh, both. So we have some indices that are specific to hunter harvest and then other indices that are total mortality. So, um, we actually have, I believe, I think it's like 200 and some bears taken annually on damage and, uh, for human safety. Mm -hmm. Um, but then we even, we, we split everything up when the, the time is appropriate to, to look at mortality levels and causes. I mean, we, we split them up. We can tell which are taken on timber damage. We can split them up to which ones are for raiding chicken coops versus entering somebody's home versus, mm-hmm. you know, bird feeders. So our data is that good. So we can say, look, um, yeah, hunting is the number one source of mortality, our bears taken on damage and human safety is 200 some, but relatively stable. We also collect information on complaints. Um, and those are stable over the last couple decades. Um, and even our complaints, we go into great detail and can categorize those. So mm. we've got a bunch of different ways to have our finger on the pulse of what's going on with bears and the public and hunters and conflict, et cetera, et cetera. And in many cases, because we're many decades into this, world of bear conservation and management it's many cases kind of a um you know the engine is just running we're just there feeding it and watching it work and we we get little concern little pushback and but still seek other opportunities and satisfy public desires Hmm. i i want to talk about the anatomy of bears because this is another among hunters that's debated um especially on on where to aim um, and in in the digestive tracts as well, um, you know, you hear about bears are always feeding because their digestive digestive tracts are shorter, the lungs are farther back, aim middle middle or you no know, aim right behind the shoulder. What's what's 
from a biologist standpoint, can you clear that up or at least help me out there a little bit? What, what is the, uh, what's the truth there behind all that stuff? Well, there's a lot of running theories. Um, but really, I mean, a fatal shot is a fatal shot. And, um, obviously the things vary by the tool used, you know, the weapon used, the caliber, draw weight, distance, a lot of factors that kick in. So obviously a heart lung shot is ideal. Um, and it doesn't really vary that much between even um, a lot of our other carnivores. Yeah, the digestive tract is a little bit shorter, but not, you know, it's not as nearly as short as a cougar, say, because a cougar, because they only eat meat, they don't have a GI tract that needs to break down uh, vegetation, hmm. like bears and our ungulates. So actually our cats have the shortest uh, digestive tract, and that's why they're their scat smells so horrendous because it's mostly just blood and hasn't had a chance to kind of come out as a, you know, a dusty um, ball of grass, like a lot of our ungulates. So, um, no, just, you know, just behind the front shoulder is still kind of an ideal target. Uh, It can be very deceiving because you have such a black coat. I think that's been one of the biggest issues is gauging distance and size and to know where to place your shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, the lungs, yeah, it's just not significant enough to really say, oh, here's clearly the difference between you know black bear strategy and others. But hunters that have harvested a number of bears and have had to trail bears based on certain shot locations, I definitely give them a lot of uh, preference for, for recommendations on some of those things. Because you know when you, when you have to trail an animal after sometimes some really tough terrain you learn very quickly not to do that again um that's the fastest way to learn and and propose a a new strategy and technique well i know i know me personally i am a little farther back off the shoulder for bear um i've shot him behind the shoulder plenty of times and those times that i feel like i smoked them and i see the video i could go back and watch it they just run and run and run and run and run and they don't stop and then you lose them and it's like what the heck just happened and granted there's a lot of there's a lot of bears that are shot right behind the shoulder that are found but there's a lot that aren't i mean there's a shocking i think bears are the number one lost not recovered animal probably out there i mean it's just it's staggering how many that don't get found every year um but when you when i start moving that bullet maybe two or three inches farther back um maybe towards the back of the thoracic cavity a little bit far bit farther uh, those bears go down way quicker i mean that bear i shot this year um, was kind of up on a hillside facing away from me. So he'd be kind of like that. And right, the shoulder blades are like right here. I put it about like right there, about three or four inches farther back down. And I got it on video and, and it rolled him and he went, you know, he went as far as the hill would roll him, you know. And then I put another one in him just to make sure it was a quick ethical, you know, no no suffering or anything. And And it just seems like all the guys that I know that are straight up bear savage killers. I mean, they just three bears a year, every year they'll they'll kill them they all aim farther back or they go for that high shoulder shot and they park it and uh, then they'll follow it up if they have to. But um, Mm -hmm. all the guys that I know that kill the the most bears and the biggest bears, they don't aim right, right behind the shoulder. And so I take that with a huge grain of salt because to me, um, you know, they use larger calibers. Everybody has their own preference. I've been using um, ones that kind of uh, the SSTs and they expand pretty damn well. And I just feel like if it goes in and then just can do a lot of damage, you know, um, I don't want to laser beam through a bear. They already don't bleed enough. 
I, I did not know that a cougar had a shorter digestive, digestive tract. And so does a cougar eat, have to eat more often because of that? Or what's the deal? Um, well, anybody that's cut open a cougar or a bobcat, you see they're all light meat. Um, like and pork. so they're ex- explosive animals. Um, they don't have a lot of stamina. So they're energetically, they do run through things pretty quickly. They don't. So um, when they're eating things, that's even how we know what, uh, you know, something a deer or an elk was killed by a cougar based on what they eat because they don't even have the teeth to crush bones and grind things up like a, a bear or a wolf or a coyote does. Hmm. So they're typically eating the meaty flesh. Um, they're eating a lot of the organs, not the digestive tract as much, but lungs, heart, liver type of stuff. And so when you're eating just a very moist, um, organ-based diet, you don't need to have a lot of time in the stomach and digestive tract to break that down versus a lot of vegetation, hair, bones, things like that. So um, doesn't stay very long in the, the digestive tract. And what comes out the other end is usually a lot of uh, blood that doesn't get digested. And so now you've got kind of this rancid blood soaked scats that just are the worst smelling things ever. And they're also very, very compact. That's one of the ways you can tell the difference between cougars and bobcats and some other uh, animals that the scat is so compact because it's not full of a lot of hair that would normally make it less compact. So it's a lot of just the, you know, the leftovers because of the, what their diet is. So um, bears are at least sort of the omnivores. So their scats, you know, especially in the springtime, that rich black, Mm-hmm. It's pretty obvious, a lot of uh, plant vegetation in there. Um, but even theirs is, is relatively shorter. They, they go through stuff real fast. Um, bear scat is not hard to find uh, <laughs> many times. And it's pretty easy to generate too if you've got, um, if you're doing bear research with cameras or you've got base stations or, or traps set up for research. Um, yeah, they're happy to, to unload all over the place. Oh, yeah. Well, I... One thing I've always wanted to know is it seems like later in the year I start seeing the bear crap turn more of a green color. Um, like about the time the, the fawns and the calves start dropping, it just seems like it, it. I've always heard that when they start feeding on fawns and calves that that pro, extra protein they're eating turns their poop a different color. Um, is that true? Is there anything to that? Because I've always heard that, and it's, it seems to always correlate around when the calves and the fawns start dropping. Um, and so people say that, you know, they, they're on a kill or they've been feeding on a kill, um, when, when their crap turns green. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Obviously, you know, what comes out one end is all the product of what goes in the other end. So, um, you know, even just the shifting from say seed heads to actual vegetation, um, can, can change things. Obviously if they're feeding on, calves and fawns you're going to see more hair and more bones present um but yeah i, I don't know i don't know about the color hmm. yeah that's that's something that maybe uh one of these days we'll find out i don't know it's probably not that important even it's just something that you know you, you hear in the woods guys are saying oh yeah that's bear's crap was green it was been feeding on a fawn he's a fawn killer you know just demonizing a bear or whatever it's just it's just things you always hear and you're like i wonder if that's actually true <laughs> you know but well, is there anything? Because um, I I know I I've got my um my a lot of my questions answered. Um, I I just with with the predator and 
populations. I was doing, I was crunching the numbers, and my wife was kind of being the devil's advocate. And, and I told her, I'm like, did you know, according to the numbers that I'm reading, that we have more bears and cougars than we do antelope, goats, and bighorn sheep? And she's like, well, yeah, but bears, antelope, and bighorn sheep are only in part of the state. I'm like, that, that's true. That's true. But that's kind of a staggering number. I mean, there's antelope, you know, you always think of a ton of antelope, and Oregon kind of sucks, in my opinion, for antelope. But, um, that's a, that's a staggering number. That's still a lot of. I mean, that's about thirty six, thirty seven thousand predators that you have there. That's not including the wolves because we don't have as many of those. But um, is there any um, goal population in mind for bears? Are we there? Are we above it? Because thirty thousand seems like to me way too many bears, and seven thousand cougars ish seems like when I was a kid, three thousand was the goal ish. Well, it depends on um, what your interest is. So there is no specific target. Um, and for obvious reasons, even if there was a target and it was lower than we have now, we almost don't have the ability to get to that target. Right. Uh, and and your wife is right that they don't occur in the same places. <laughs> we don't have pronghorn sheep and goats in Portland suburbs, but we do cougars. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's, it's just a, a difficult thing to try to talk about at a statewide scale because then, too, Oregon is a huge state. And so even when you take 36,000, which some of that does include youngsters, which don't really oftentimes play a major role. Hmm. Um, okay, that starts to be diluted pretty quickly. And we do have cougars darn near everywhere. Bears, yeah. a little bit less so, but at higher densities in certain places. So really, um, each situation's case by case. You know, there's all sorts of local information factoring into things. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of places, especially elk, we see things doing all right. Um, mule deers sometimes not doing the best, but we've already identified a lot of other habitat issues that seem to be the, the biggest issue. We, we've got invasive grasses. We've got juniper. We've got a lot of major large-scale problems that even when we're collaring these animals, it's not that they're all getting picked off by predators. It's that nutritionally they're not making it and it's really mm. tough even even some of the i mean this is really it's not that new anymore but it's still <clears throat> groundbreaking that we're discovering that summer range condition for a lot of our ungulates is far more important than winter conditions huh. um, normally you would just assume that well yeah winter situation winter range is the most important but the reality is winter is just kind of a slow death for everything um the issue is when they're heading into winter, are they fat enough? Are they um, robust enough to last through this winter? And so now that's kind of had to change everybody's thinking on things that really now it's summer condition that we have to focus on that before we were just like, look, let's put all our eggs more or less in the winter range basket um, because that's where they're dying. That's where the nutrients are, are limiting, limiting, but, we're finding out summer range is what, if you, you won't survive winter if you come in with even the best winter range habitat, if you come into winter lean and not having the right resources. Right. So that's a good point. But obviously, yeah, it, it's a mixed bag to address these things. It's, it's all different scales, all different tools, you know, changing habitat is expensive and difficult to do. It doesn't happen overnight. So, um, you know, fortunately, a lot of our hunting groups are recognizing that. And a lot of like, say, RMEF does a lot of habitat work. A lot of our OHA chapters are recognizing that as well. So sometimes it's a tough 
pills to swallow because you want to say that like, well, I, I have a tough time not thinking that, you know, predators are, are an enormous limiting factor. They could be a factor, but um, when we look at it, you know, apples to apples, it, it's not nearly as important or influential as some of the habitat components. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, I've got one more curveball for you there. Um, we always hear, you know, these rumors. I've, I've we've dispelled a few of them on this episode. But what's the what's the deal with the grizzly bears coming back to Oregon? I know historically they were here, and I think the last one historically was killed in the Medfordish area. Um, if if whatever I was reading was correct, but what's the deal there? And is there any truth to Cascade grizzly bears making a return? So Oregon does not have any grizzly bears. Um, and just like wolves were, you know, ODFW is not moving them around with Blackhawk helicopters and dropping them <laughs> at night. Um, but there are bears in Northern Idaho and there's bears in, in the Cascades of uh, Washington. Um, so there's a whole big federal mess talking about promoting um, reintroductions of grizzlies. We're not involved in any of that. We, we haven't taken a side or, or we're really just trying to keep ourselves away from uh, all of that discussion. But um there obviously are occasional potential sightings and most of the time looking at the photos and such like that, people are seeing a brown or cinnamon bear and just not paying attention to the differences between black bears and grizzly bears. Um, a lot of our hunters, I think, could recognize the differences, but um, maybe don't because uh, there's, you know, there are a few things that you really need to key in on. And that's why a lot of hunters that have hunted other states know that there's some states require that you have to pass a a bear ID quiz before you can go hunt there. Hmm. Um, similar to like, uh, you know, our wolf coyote ID quiz that we have on our website, you know, just try to help people recognize that no, a wolf isn't just a large coyote, just like a grizzly isn't a large black bear. Um, right. They do have different features to them. So, but where our ears are open, I mean, my goodness, if there's one thing to make wolves take a back seat, grizzlies somehow should find out. <laughs> I definitely do that. But yeah, um, now nah, we're we're just keeping an eye on things that are hopefully with more than arm's reach from us from now into the the future. And two, um, you know, some of the historical information is a little bit tricky to always validate because um, without museum specimens, it's difficult. Hmm. Um, you know, we all know folks have a tough time distinguishing things, especially at a distance. I can't tell you how many photos of black panthers running through backyards we've had to dispel. <laughs> um, so similar thing, you know, just who knows how many cinnamon and brown bears over time and in historical records, maybe we're, we're just that we, hmm. similarly, um, and we've got records of, um, large bobcats used to be called, uh, lynx cats in the fur records. And, and so if you look at certain databases, they'll say Oregon had just links coming out of our ears when in reality, it was just a naming. Hmm. So um, some of the, the grizzly history is a little bit complicated, but um, yeah, there's not much to report on at all on, on the grizzly front in Oregon. Thank goodness. Interesting. Well, it's just, it's so weird what we, especially non-hunters put a value on and, and it just seems like the more majestic, the more important they are, you know, like uh, a wolf is so stoic and majestic and so pretty and fun to watch and great to think about how they're, they're out there. But then for us to actually have to deal with them, it's a whole different thing. And like, you don't hear any uproar about nutrients. Those aren't native, you know, those aren't carp, 
you got Asian carpet, Fern Ridge. I've been shooting the crap out of them. You don't hear any uproar about that, you know, or Tui Chubbs and Diamond Lake. Somebody kept throwing those suckers in there, and and we throw non-natives, non-native trout species and lakes that have no business being in there. You know, like Diamond Lakes had I don't know how many different species of trout thrown in it, but it's, it's been a few. You know, how many did it have originally? I don't know. You know, they I, I've heard rumors that they thought talked about throwing pike or something in there to get rid of the small invasive species and stuff so it's just really funny that we're we're picking battles over certain things but the ones that probably make the biggest difference are the ones that are the majestic looking and fun to think about ones in the woods like the wolves and stuff and the grizzly bears and you know my dad is not a wolf advocate but he he said when he saw one it was pretty damn cool he saw one out uh just outside of glide up rock creek um, okay. at, at about the three mile marker, four mile marker, right off the main road. And he's like, when I saw it, I knew I was like, I never seen a wolf in my life before, but he's like, when I saw it, I knew immediately that's a freaking wolf. And he's like, I wish I got my camera out. You know, like it got me excited and it was crazy to see it. And, and, um, you know, I trust him hundred percent that he saw a wolf. He called me as soon as he got service up there. And, um, you know, I would love to see him. I heard him in Idaho, but I don't like the repercussions a lot. Uh, of what could happen seeing what's happened in Idaho and Yellowstone and stuff like that. And the numbers they've had on our elk populations, it just, I don't like thinking about that. And I don't know what, what happened with our elk populations over here um, at the coast range for elk, because I mean, those aren't, I don't think those elk are as, as athletic as a Rocky mountain that can run, 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 run. You know, it's just, there's a, there's a lot of fear for me that for the unknown of, of what our ungulate populations are going to specifically elk um, sure. with, with the wolves and stuff. Yeah. And, and you I, address it. It's, it's the fear of the unknown. Um, and we have that fear as well. Uh, fortunately to date, all of our elk populations are at or above MO everywhere we have wolves. Um, although there are some areas where we're trying to reduce elk numbers for, for damage. So knock on wood, um, at this point, we're not seeing the impact of wolves. Um, but we do recognize that, yeah, you described the coast range as being really difficult for an elk to traverse. Well, wolves are coursers. They need to get something running and they basically run it to death and nip it to death. And we recognize there's probably a lot of places of the Cascades and the coast range that's just not going to be good wolf habitat for that reason. That'll maybe still be the where the cougars are still the, the apex predator mm. because it's better for the, the mousers, the, the predators that can pounce on things. So yeah, we're going to keep continue to keep a close eye on those things. The fear of the unknown drives everybody, but it also makes us hungry for more information. And um, hopefully we can continue to be a little bit more proactive on this front, which is good because we've got a lot of diligent folks out there looking for wolves. And so even when our livestock producers were getting good buy-in on some of these measures to reduce conflict, and those are being implemented before wolves even show up. Mm. So there's no reason to ignore the lessons learned in Eastern Oregon and elsewhere in the West here uh, on the wolf topic. Um, but I will say when it comes to the Cascades and the Coast Range, that's totally different from where wolves occur everywhere else uh, yeah. in the Western U.S. So we're almost starting from scratch on a lot of these things. And so it's kind of a fun opportunity for <clears throat> the public, for biologists and others to put our heads together on what are our options, how to proceed in these environments that are very different than Yellowstone and Northern Idaho. Hmm. Well, Hey, I, I appreciate you coming on and I had a great time listening to you. I learned a lot of different things that I, I had no idea. I didn't know. 
And uh, I personally would love to have you back on to talk about the cougar populations, the wolf populations. I actually did a wolf episode. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest that you listen to it because you uh, might <laughs> might want to might want to kill me and my and my guest on that episode. But uh, my buddy's my buddy's very outspoken against the ODF and W. <laughs> so, but it, it might, you might listen to it and, and you might say, yeah, I'm not going on, on back on that guy's show again. But um, it's it's uh, I tried really doing my own research and, and and just wading through all the man wolves have the best pr agents in the world i mean they really do there's a lot of money spent making those things look like they you know fart rainbows i i don't get it but um it's like 10 to 1 you know to get down to the facts you have to read through 10 freaking articles to get to a factual research basis you know and and um so i i did my best trying to get to the facts i had like five pages of notes and then um, I had one of my good buddies who's on, who was on one of the wolf, um, committees or something like that. Advisory committee for yeah, I think, I think he got kicked off, but, um, yeah, he, uh, he was pretty, he's pretty outspoken. So you may or may not, you know, for you're, you're forewarned if you go back out and check out that episode, um, <laughs> I'd be curious to see what you think about it, but, um, I appreciate you coming on, man. And is there anything in closing that you want to get out there or, um, any, any, you know, if anybody has any questions, do you want to give them some contact information for you? Yeah, at the very least, I mean, we have a ton of information, a ton of data in this agency, and all of it's available on our website. It's all at your fingertips. So uh, our first bear plan, I think, occurred in 1987. has been updated <clears throat> two times since then. So 2012 is the last update of the bear plan. So it's right on our website. Pretty easy, nice and straightforward. Kind of the one-stop shop for all things bear-related for the state of Oregon. It's not going to talk a lot about bear populations in southern Missouri. It's going to be Oregon information, and so it's a good spot. Same thing with our cougar plan. That was updated in 2017, and even the wolf plan that was updated in 2019. Hmm. So those are good places for people to go. You, the hunter, can get some appreciation for how your data has been used. Um, we also have information on our website from our commission meetings that usually occur in September under the big game process. You can see a number of these. Uh, maps and figures on uh, bear mortalities, these indices we're looking at. But ultimately, as usual, speaking with your local district biologist can get you a lot of information on what's the finger on the pulse of um, damage or conflict or what's hot on the bear world or where to go hunting. Um, a lot of our biologists really love uh, the topic of bear and are happy to engage in these conversations. So um, please take advantage of this resource like many of you have already done so in the past. And I do want to appreciate everybody's help and involvement um, to make the bear program what it is today. Like I said before, the amount of information that we have available primarily coming from hunters makes my job way easier mm -hmm. and uh, makes my defense of our management techniques and hunting much easier as well. So a lot of times folks catch wind of certain ballot initiatives or things occurring elsewhere in the country and, and we're able to hold our own because of all that information that hunters have helped provide. Hmm. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, hopefully people aren't just clicking, no, I didn't go hunt cause it's easier to report that way. So, you know, I'm afraid of how many people do that because it is quicker. I mean, it's, it's you know, maybe a minute quicker, but it's it's quicker and easier if you just click no. And I, I just, I've always wondered what percentage of people are actually doing that because that's not helping us out. And, and I know there's a train of people out there that think that if I did kill something, that's going to be less bears for next year. So they're going to decrease our tags. And it's really the opposite, right? I mean, you guys go off of 
harvest numbers. And then if it's, there's a lot of bears getting killed and they're older bears, we're going to increase or potentially keep the tags the same and stuff uh, based off what you said earlier. So um, hopefully people aren't, aren't um, being falsifying with their information that they're given. And one last question before we get off here, what, how accurate are those tooth analysis that you guys do for aging? Bears pretty darn accurate. Um, they all go to one lab. That's all they do. They are the lab that most of North America sends their stuff to. Okay. Um, when it comes to cougars, it's less accurate because the tooth, it's, it's basically the growing season and then the resting season that creates those rings of a tree, basically. Okay. When bears go into wintertime, there's less growth. And so that's how it helps create that ring versus cougar that are active year round. It's not as easy to count those rings on the tooth. So when it comes to bear data from two samples, incredibly accurate. So we collect two samples too. We even, hopefully the lab's not listening, but we send them some double blind samples to see if they um, <laughs> age two samples from the same bear the same. Uh, and indeed, yeah, we get we get great information. They're very consistent. It's what they do. Oh, awesome. Well, I, I always thought about maybe sending in doing exactly that. I'm like trying to trick you guys or something I'm like, okay, let's just see how accurate this is. But you guys have already done that. <laughs> so, all right, Derek. Well, hey, I appreciate your time, man. And um, I look forward to hopefully having you back on the show here sometime. And, and I hope you have a great rest of the day, dude. Thank you. You too. Yeah, no problem. All right, guys, that's this episode of the podcast. Thanks, Derek, for coming on the show. Thank you for tuning in and listening. And if you haven't yet, be sure to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you can, leave a comment with that. If I do any future giveaways, you'll be entered. But you have to leave a comment or else I can't see who entered it. Uh, also, if you're not following us on Instagram or YouTube, you can type in my name, uh, Garrett Weaver, on YouTube. You can find me on there. Or if you want to follow me on Instagram, on point with Garrett Weaver. And uh, happy to have you as a follower. And uh, if you guys just want to keep in, keep in loop better, that's the best way to do it. So outside of that, appreciate you for listening, and I will see you on the next one. Bye.